0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I talk to actress and playwright Denai Gurita. The talented and worldly Denai Gurita has been bridging the gap between disparate worlds ever since her family moved from Grinnell, Iowa, all the way to Africa when she was five years old. In school, The Zimbabwean American, or Zamerican as she calls herself, was the African kid with the twangy American accent who got along with everybody regardless of race and class. That ability to cross both artistic and geographic borders has defined Denai's career. On the blockbuster side, she inhabits the character of Okoye in the Marvel film Black Panther and the character of Michonne, the butt-kicking zombie killer in AMC's hit series The Walking Dead. And on the literary side, she's a playwright with Broadway success who mingles with the highbrow theater crowd. But don't get caught up in Western delineations between actor and writer, because at her core, Denai is a storyteller, a woman who uses her unique perspective and artistic talent to reveal the shared humanity between seemingly different worlds of Africa and America. Denai points out, the talent must be nurtured and distractions must be set aside because the whole goal of storytelling is to become a worthy enough vessel for the story to come through you. Denai joins us to discuss the nuanced world of Ryan Kugler's Black Panther, auditioning for The Walking Dead, overcoming grad school breakdowns and discovering her artistic mandate. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Tanai.
1: Hi, Sam.
0: Thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You know, you are our first Zimbabwean American.
1: Uh, Ah, aha. There are not many of us, actually. (laughs) Well,
0: well, look, you are a very unique individual, not only in your heritage, but also in the fact that it's almost like you have these two disparate identities in the art world, too. Because on one side, you have this massive comic con blockbuster following through the walking dead and through also uh, black panther and on the other side you're this kind of high art broadway playwright <laughs> and and from from the outside it looks like being from two countries that you know don't often
1: overlap yeah. overlap
0: but from where you sit is the connection more obvious to you or does it seem that dissimilar for you to have those two worlds that you live in?
1: Um, It it can. It can feel dissimilar. Um, When there are moments of overlap, it's quite nice. Like, I know, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but the head of the Public Theater, which of course is very high-bra art, one of my plays was just done uh, in the last year or two, he loves The Walking Dead so that's like really? this great overlap between that and that those worlds and then there are heads of other theaters who are like so when are you going to be done with this whole acting with the sword thing I hear you're right. doing you know and come and like workshop one of your plays with us again you know so it's a very interesting overlap and slash complete disparity at the same time but um, yeah for me it, it just feels like I don't know how to be anything other than what I am I guess so it's just, when, I, when it's described back to me, I realize how kind of nutty or unusual it sounds. Right. And honestly, the one part that I never imagined was the the, the Walking Dead, Marvel component of my life. I never imagined well, that. Well,
0: how could you imagine
1: that? Yeah, that's true, right? Um, I was always just planning on telling African women stories and doing a lot of theater, and that oh, was right. kind of my plan. And, but then, you know, I went to Tisch for grad acting, and so you get an agent, and they send you out for film and TV work. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll go that's in for that.
0: That's part of the part <laughs> the deal, yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: that even crossed my mind initially. But yeah, then I started to go into um, auditioning for, for, t- for TV and film and literally um, Walking Dead, I was moving here to Los Angeles to really focus on starting to write for the screen actually. But then right at that moment Walking Dead came along and I was in Atlanta and I was shooting this TV right. show seven months a year so, and everything changed. So it's, it, it was interesting. It's always like, I always feel like my acting creeps up on me And my writing, I plan out, and my acting creeps up on me.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, but it's always like exactly what I never knew I always wanted. That's kind of what happens with me in acting because I I didn't, um, you know, I'm very particular about the roles I will do because I think that it's a lot of, it's a grand investment to give yourself to a television show or to a franchise. And it's it's a big investment. And for me, I'm always like, well, it has to make sense to me in a way that's not like, oh, it's a job. It has to go far beyond that. Um, Also because, you know, I do... Have you know that also strong connection to creating uh, works on the on the page, and um, it's there's been some very interesting moments of the overlap, and and both sides have been very accommodating when my play eclipsed was. Was on Broadway at the same time. Um, my play *Familiar* was off Broadway. I, the *The Walking Dead* was so supportive and accommodating of my needs to go back and forth to New York, and you know, and they a lot of them came and watched the plays. And so it's really um, it's been fortunate that way. But I will say, even though I went to school for acting and I am very much an actor, I do sometimes feel my acting crawls up on me, whereas my my writing is always planned.
0: Well, it's funny because it seems like in your case. Um, one success has begat another. And I would think there could be some nervousness about this one kind of success, like The Walking Dead leading into Black Panther. It's almost like, be careful what you wish for, because those opportunities are so amazing. But at the same time, you only have one life and you have to choose where to put your time. do Do you ever think about that? Or is there a master plan to... To sort of these big blockbuster type things,
1: I'd love to say I, there was a master plan that I was very specific like that, but um, yeah, really all I do is I do my heart check. Like when I was approached to do Black Panther, I was shocked and, and amazed, and and was like, really? And I couldn't, I couldn't even believe it was happening. I was like. They're just offering me a role in black. What? And and then I met Ryan Coogler, and he hadn't even seen Walking Dead. Really? He'd never seen it. So
0: do you see this world where those two things are getting closer together where yes. we do have these tentpole blockbuster films, but they're inhabited by independent-minded people.
1: And, you know, you have to give that credit to, um, you know, the, the the heads of Marvel and places like that where they see the power and the ability in those small, intimate films and bring those guys in as Helmers, you know? Right. And um, that's really exciting because he's, like, very, very... He did create the world with intricate intimacy and allowed us in with, as, with, as great collaborators. And that really allowed an ownership and a lot of heart and guts and soul to go into to what we were doing on set every day.
0: And did that surprise you when you got the script and you started to go through it?
1: No, because I think from the get-go, when uh, with him helming it, it just set a tone. And sitting down across from him and hearing his vision and hearing what he'd written and what he was thinking about and how the world worked and and why it worked this way and all the amazing components of real African cultural representation he was pulling from with great specificity and, and awareness, I mean, I was just sold. Because a big thing for me of my pursuit as an artist is to tell stories from the African perspective and tell them with a great range of of specificity and you know and you know complexity and he was totally on it he was completely on that and I thought that was really exciting to be able to play an African woman on the Marvel scale I mean that to me I it was just like nothing there was it was a severe no-brainer
0: <laughs> right and and I would I would guess that that would give you larger expectations about your own work about the size. It could be, or the audience it could have.
1: I guess so. Like it's interesting because like, for me, it's always like every. I, I guess I don't think like that immediately. It takes a really long time for me to even think like that because I'm honestly I'm thinking about telling the story, and that's the thing that's going to engage me and and for, for, and fulfill me. Right. Is like, am I telling a story that I want to tell? Am I fully? Engaged in getting this character on the screen with as much integrity and complexity and preparation as possible, and so that's kind of where my mind is—is is like really getting into you know the making of the thing.
0: I would think it would expand the horizons for what kind of audience you could reach, both by doing The Walking Dead and and by being involved in a Marvel franchise, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it's so funny because it really only hit me. Um, The scale—you'd think, you know, there was, you know, such an an amazing response to the trailer. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, there's an audience for this film. You know, like the trailer response was amazing, and it's just continued to be so. Um, But it was actually when I went back to Zimbabwe, like, that I realized the scale that.
0: Oh, do people recognize you there? Yeah,
1: I could go nowhere. It was the, it was like, I was like, really? Because the last time I was here two years ago, this was not happening.
0: Now, do they get The Walking Dead? Yeah, they do they, they do, they do. So they
1: do, It was that too, but there was a lot of excitement around Black Panther, a lot of excitement.
0: It's like San Diego Comic Con in Zimbabwe.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, 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 it's very real. It was very, and they were very uh, engaged and aware and have been connected to Marvel for a long time and were very excited about this. And so I, I, that's kind of, when I realized I could go actually nowhere without being approached and, and selfies and all that, and I was like, wow.
0: How does that fandom worldwide and the and the realization that you can't go anywhere how does that affect you like just on a personal level? I've yeah,
1: I mean, it's very interesting because I mean, thankfully, I only really started to deal with anything like a big franchise when, you know, I was in my 30s, like, you know, just just now, like in the last few years. So it's not, so I've I've been myself for a really long time. Right. So it wasn't something that molded me I still really looked and because as a playwright too and even as an actor too I do a lot of person-to-person research with various people so I never want to be feel separate like separate from people and um or you know disconnect from just being around people so if fine if you recognize me fine we're still going to have a normal conversation so I brought one of my buddies who was in my play Eclipse and we, she just came from me to Zimbabwe on an absolute whim and we were sitting in this sort of lounge place and it was like you know, it, it was a, kind of a stream of people coming, you know, at us here and there. But, you know, it was she was like, I love how you're handling this. Because, and I was like, well, I'm, there's just no way I'm going to not relate to people. I'm interested in people. You know what I mean? Fine, take your picture, but I want to have a chat. Like, and I'm still going to learn some interesting stuff from you and maybe you from me. But, you know, I, I, I insist that I retain uh, absolute utter connection and, and accessibility.
0: Right. Well, okay, so I have to ask, when you originally got the audition for Walking Dead...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you sort of looked at the the scope the, because the show was on for a couple yeah, years at that yeah, point. Yes. I was just curious what it took for you to say okay, I'm going to sign up for 7 years You this.
1: know, it's interesting you ask that because um like I it's a very the push pull between being a writer and an actor. a like year before that, a year before Walking Dead came along, there was another uh TV show that I don't Think is still on, and it was a kind of a cop show, and it was in like a pilot mode. Right, and I was being approached. Literally, it was at that point where they're like, "You pretty much have it if you like, you know, if you sign this the contract." And um, I was, I, I was not feeling it enough to do that. And I was like, "This is seven years. This is possibly seven years at least." Um, And I don't have... um, I had another play coming out. This was around 2012. Yeah, 2011. So I said, my play's coming out. Right. And it was going to have a rolling world premiere across three states and three great theaters. And I would not be available to help birth it if I was... Completely contracted to this TV show and what it needed from me. And it was not a TV show that really intrigued me, nor did the character seem to have anywhere to go or anything to do. But it's a TV job. Right. So um, that's supposed to be, you know, the, you know, the the Quan. And you have the agents going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is, exactly. You should take so, this. Right. So I literally had to, uh, you know, I, I really, I came to a decision. I was like, I can't do it. I can't sign this contract. I can't do it. I can't do that to my play. I can't do that to the artistic directors who invested in my play. And and, I, and I, this is not worth doing that to it.
0: How hard was that decision?
1: Um, it wasn't bad. I, I made it quite quickly um, because it was so clear to my heart. But uh, the hardest part was telling my people Especially the ones who'd really invested in me, right? And like, I remember I was kind of bawling to my to my I did cry uh, to my manager because i was like, I'm sorry, I'll make you money one day. I swear, I'll make you money one day. And he's like, No, you know, Dad, I fine. Don't cry, don't cry. You know, you know men can't stand here, won't cry. But I was crying because I really felt bad because he works hard for me, and I knew that like this is there's no check involved in my theater work, you know. And I just was like, I know that you know you work really hard for me, and you know. And he was like, Don't cry, don't cry, Don't cry, don't cry. He was like, He was like, He was like, um, I respect you. I respect you. And so it was very sweet. You know they they accepted it, but like it was a big deal because it was like it was a guaranteed big check. Yeah, for seven well, uh, years. But say, then a year later, along came something I was willing to sign for.
0: Which was The Walking forward. Dead.
1: Exactly, ha- which I would not have been available for had I signed that other
0: contract. Isn't that funny? That's so often the story that a big opportunity comes around and and you have this crisis of how do you pass up the money or how do you, and then when it bears out, it proves that you have to stick with your gut. instinct, no matter Yeah. 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 But you do have to learn to say no. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's I think it's the most powerful word artists have because you are then you are defining your own path. And really, if you are an artist, you you have a vision. You have you have you have vision of of where you want to go, what you want to contribute. And, you know, you're not you're not just being brought around like a product to be seen. You're aware of where you're trying to go to at least a pretty great extent. And so the idea of, of knowing how to say no to things that you do not feel aligned with that, and they don't make sense to your heart and where you're trying to go, you know, it can be hard because it can be big things you're saying no to. But yeah. it, it, you know, and at the time I did seem a little nutty, but they all understood ultimately, this is who she is. We know this is who she is. Why? We, we, we won't fret. We trust that something else will come along. And, and something else did 12 months later. and, Quite literally, um, the reason why I love The Walking Dead is something to do. I watched, I hadn't watched it because I'm a scaredy cat, and I watched it to, rehe- to you know, re- rehearse my auditioning and what's the tone of this show, and I just loved it. It wasn't a genre TV show to me at all, and I was to- I was totally taken. I loved the actors. I was like, how many of these guys are from theater? Like, there was just something about how they were working that just felt so rich and, and like, egoless and and just really connected to telling the story well. And that's like, I was like, I want to hang in that. Like, that's somewhere I'd want to hang and want to do all that. You know, I want to do all that. And it looked all gritty and, you know, intense. And, you know, people were doing crazy stuff and getting really grimy and disgusting and dirty and, you know, living on the edge. I was like, yes, I just wanted it. And then the other side of it was, the character, she was in the comic book, so I had an idea of her. Right. And I, I could see that she was uh, very interesting and very complex and, like, nothing I'd ever seen. As a writer, I was like, I, I would never have thought of this chick, like, you know, dreadlocks and a sword and, you know, self-made army. But this one of my plays was about women in the army—I mean, in rebel armies, rather. Right, Eclipsed. Right, in West Africa. And I'd done a lot of research there, and, and I was like, wow, it's— it's kind of like those, these, she's kind of like those women. So to me, how I related to The Walking Dead world was how it felt like a war zone to me. It felt like how, you know, when I read, learned about what happened in Liberia when I went there, you see the devastation of war. You see literally how institutions and structures and social, everything just goes out the window. And it's just like, everybody is is on a whole different level of survival.
0: So when you get the call to audition for that, did you put yourself on tape or did you come no, in No, I came
1: in. Um, the awesome Uh, Sharon Bialy you know right here in LA she'd seen me in 2006 and she just has this rolodex of actors that she's like I'm gonna get you a role one day you know like she's like that and she's amazing and she's very much into theater and so um she called me in and she said she was like I think this is it
0: well I'll tell you I've sat in a lot of auditions because I've directed some TV and and you know, they're the worst rooms ever because it's oh, yeah. a blank wall and a desk and nine people eating lunch. And, <laughs> and, you know, that works for most scenes. You could sit down with someone as your scene partner right. and you can get through a scene. But I imagine that this would have been a totally different experience because your character is not only so intense but so physical. And especially the first season, there wasn't a lot of dialogue there.
1: No, no, there wasn't. So how do you
0: audition for such a physical Role that required so much, um, almost required so much acting in an environment.
1: I mean, it, they they created a scene that uh, never they create scenes. they not going because you know, Walking Dead is so top secret. So they don't even, they didn't even, even on my contract, it didn't say my actual character's name.
0: Your but entire career is secrecy. Like, no one can see a Marvel film before it comes out, and you can't talk about I anything. It you're all afraid you're going to end up in jail if you say the wrong I thing. It
1: was so funny when I got into the Marvel franchise. I was like, oh, I know this story. I got you. I got you. I got you. I know how to do this. I got you. I do this. I got this. But, yeah, it's funny. But, yeah, so basically uh, they, they gave me this scene that never, was never enacted which was great actually because it was just for them to see intensity, emotionality, everything. So it wasn't what you see in the first season because they needed to see what you were capable of, like the whole gamut of it. So, right. But it was, it was great because it really allowed you to show, it, like the, to figure out the range of the character and to figure out where to enact it and how and, and who she was ab- what she was about. And, and I don't know, she just became very clear to me. And I think, you know, when they started writing her in through season three specifically, she, the, the idea that she was not a talker was a thing that was decided on, which I wasn't thrilled about. When they, I sat down the writers and said, she's not gonna talk much, and I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I like talking. Like, I mean, I li- I'm a, you know, I write, I like to create monologues. I like giving actors stuff to do. But I did love how, it was a very interesting challenge for me because her, her monologue was internal. It was driven by a lot of fear, actually, that came out as a ferocity and a cutoffness. And Armor. A, exactly armor. And that was an interesting thing to play. It was fascinating, actually, to play that. Very different from me. So it was very interesting.
0: How did you wrap your head around that at first? Once once you sort of swallowed the pill of she doesn't talk much, did it create any anxiety or fear about how, how am I going to do this? Or did you discover a way to prep for her that, that ended up working? You
1: know, one of the ways I used, which was, it's going to sound crazy, but I did really go into research that um, paralleled the horrors of the world that was real. What do you mean? I do a lot of research on human rights abuses and things like that that actually enrage me and um, really impassion me to write in a specific way about those stories and giving people voice that never get it, like that's what really drives me. And so connecting to that type of passion and rage inside of me, actually it connects to how I allow a character to, to have a lot of P- I thought she had a lot of PTSD going on. Right. A lot of pain and, 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 tor- and turmoil going on that a lot of people have to deal with and never express in the so real world. So did you world. research
0: how people with PTSD behave?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Big time. And, and it was, it's important to me to connect to, to true human experiences. Of course. That's, a, that's my job.
0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. And if I sound very chipper right now, it's because, well, I got a really good night's sleep. And since I got my Helix Sleep mattress a while ago now, I've been getting really good sleep. As a matter of fact, my Helix Sleep mattress totally changed my outlook on sleep and the way I felt and the way my body feels. This is not something where I'm reading ad copy. This is my own experience with Helix Sleep. You know, I've had back issues for a lot of my life. I've skateboarded and surfed and ridden motorcycles since I was a kid. And, you know, there's a price to pay for that with your body. And I don't know, ever since my 20s, I've had injuries, but I've also just had a lot of sort of back issues. And for a long time, I just thought I should be on a firm mattress and I, you know, should suck it up. I didn't realize until i got involved with helix sleep that i was going through a lot of unnecessary uncomfortable nights in bed over the years so helix sleep is a pretty amazing company they make personalized mattresses right here in america and they ship them straight to your door and they give you a hundred night sleep trial no contact delivery and free returns so right there it's pretty amazing but What I found most intriguing and ultimately most successful about the whole Helix model is that they created this quiz that allows you to find out what kind of sleeper you are and what kind of mattress you should have. I erroneously thought I should be on a really hard mattress, but I took their two-minute quiz and they matched my body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for me, which turned out to be more of a medium firm mattress you know, I answered a few questions. I get this mattress and I first sat on it and I was like, this doesn't feel like my normal mattress. And then after my first night sleeping, and then again in about a week, I was just blown away by the difference about how much better I slept, how much better I felt. I love my Helix mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ Wired Magazine and Apartment Therapy. So you got to try this mattress out. If you're in the market for a mattress, if it's time, I urge you all to take the two-minute quiz and find a mattress that makes you feel better. Go to helixsleep.com offcamera off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. And they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. I'm betting you will. Best of all, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash offcamera. That's helixsleep.com slash offcamera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Now back to the show. So hearing you say all of this, do you think you're a writer first or an actor first?
1: Generally, what I'm doing is... Um I'm really looking, it sounds ridiculous, but I am looking at it from the mindset of a storyteller because it's probably something that, that my, the, the great Ron Van Lu, he's an acting teacher who was at NYU Tisch, he said, you know, read a script for the first time just with a childlike sense of attention, you know? So you're not looking at it going, where's my line? Or you're not looking at it going, "Uh, what happens? You know, you're looking at it like, how do I, I just want to enjoy this as a story. I'd take it in like a story, like like something like when a child is reading their nighttime story, and their eyes get big when they see that thing, and then oh no, what's gonna happen next? You know, and they're that engaged. You know, that's how I try to pick up a script and read it. First off,
0: like a child, I like, love that description. Yeah. Now, w- yeah. Did your parents read to you as a kid?
1: Well, um, they expected me to read. I'm the child of academics. My mother's a librarian, so our house was inundated with every type of book from Judy Blume to James Baldwin and uh, it was very much like read the books in this house. There are plenty of them and I shipped them from Grinnell, Iowa to Harare, Zimbabwe so read them. <laughs> yeah?
0: Okay, oh, yeah. well tell so, me about that. Tell me how old were you when you moved? I was five. You're five years old. Why did your parents move to Zimbabwe?
1: A lot of folks did that when um, Zimbabwe became independent. Um, when countries like Barack Obama's father did it, when Kenya became independent. You know, it's like you it, you kind of felt like you're in a certain degree of exile. They all came here in the '60s, right around kind of the Kennedy era. A lot of institutions started bringing Africans here for university. So that sort of a thing was something you did. you came here. Unfortunately, a lot of those African countries started to go, well specifically mine, um, Southern Africa started to go into uh, very t- uh, turmoiled times. Right. You know they couldn't go home. So just like them, the minute independence came, you wanted to go home, you know and, and help build your new nation. And so my parents' uh, independence came in 1980, and uh, we went back end of 1983.
0: Do you remember being old enough to have an opinion about moving back?
1: You know, you're a kid. You can adapt so easily. I adapted into Zim so easily. It was, you know, Zim was, you know, very, very modern African nation. And so I grew up around a very, very diverse crowd of people. And of course, Zimbabwe is racially diverse as it is. You know, as I said, like that's where the white population settled, like for the uh, last 150, 200 years and Indian population. And, um, you know, there's an Asian population that's very present there now. And and so it's always been a very, uh, a very culturally diverse, uh, racially diverse place.
0: So when you were a kid, did you feel the need or or the pressure to identify as either American or African or?
1: I always felt my little um, American thing. I always felt like I had my little twangy accent. And, and, was that that was a, like, an and I was or... very much an African kid at the same right. time. Well, some people understood it, and there were other kids kind of like me, but then you're kind of a weirdo at the same time, but not in any crazy way. Because I was always I was a jock. I was and I was very talkative. So I was a cool kid. I wasn't some I wasn't in the corner, but there wasn't I mean it's not like American schools. Amer- when I watched TV shows that were movies about American high schools, I am like, what is going on in those things? <laughs> you know? How is it different? Oh, the clicks and, and you know the, the whole like the jog, the cheerleader, the, dump, the, the the goths, you know, all the groupings that have that seemed to happen in American yeah. high schools. We don't really have that. Also, also because we also are not wearing um, our own clothes. We're all in uniforms. right? And that eliminates a lot of things. And we also are generally in single sex schools. That also eliminates a lot of things.
0: Well, so how did you discover performing in the arts?
1: It was actually um, a few things, but the key thing was I was in a, I, this family that lived down the road from us. The father um, was a, a professor of arts and professor of really english and dramatic arts at the university of zimbabwe but he created something called chipawa which is children's performing arts workshop and kind of you know i was kind of recruited in there to be one of the pioneer members you know and um we were learning traditional dance we were learning how to you know sing certain songs you know so it was actually all of that but also we were creating pieces of work that were relevant to the day so
0: you, you weren't were getting an americanized them. version where they were showing you american films and television shows
1: no 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 we had that though I mean, And that's when when you went to the movies in Zimbabwe, you were watching American movies. When you turned off, you you watched a lot of American television. So we had tons of that exposure. But he was not interested in that at all. And he was very much because he was really also a professor of the dramatic arts. You know, I learned a lot of the, the the reverence you have to have around the craft and how much work it takes. I learned the work ethic at that point, which is when I was like 12, 13.
0: And your parents being academics, did they have a respect for theater and the arts and acting? Yeah, they did. They, did. they just
1: didn't like picking me up and dropping me off from rehearsals. <laughs> that that they could do without. But no, yeah, my parents are all about pursue. you know, my dad, Grinnell College, like, it's a liberal arts college, like, it's like, pursue what you enjoy. And I, and to believe that it that it mattered, you know, because it's like, you know, I remember debating with things with my dad when I was 15, and it was great, we'd debate, you know, have a conversation, have a have, think, have your own thoughts, bring out your perspective, bring out why. You know, and that was something that, you know, I was always having very intense conversations with people three, four times my age, really? You know, yeah, I was like when i I'd, I'd I'd enjoy people older than me coming to my house so I could, you know, have hash out an issue. you know, that was kind of how I grew up. And, you know, it was kind of what was encouraged by my parents, which was very unusual. We were very unusual that way wow. in Zimbabwe to have this very talkative young girl. and when did you kind of know, okay?
0: I I wanna do this, I wanna perform, I wanna be on stage. And like, when did you realize that was a thing you could do?
1: In college, I was definitely engaged in theater, but it wasn't what I thought I was gonna do.
0: Right, because you, what did you you went back to the United States for college? Yes. Was that always the plan?
1: Always. Always my the plan. My parents came went to the United States, you know, when during the '60s, and we were all born here, so it was kind of like, of course, you're gonna go back and go to liberal arts college in the United States. That's what we do. That's what that's what the Gutitas do. And they'd all gone. All my siblings had gone and done that. So yeah. That Interesting. Totally so you went to McAllister, right? I went to McAllister. And is that sister. in Minnesota? It is. It's in okay. Saint Paul, Minnesota. Yes.
0: And and okay, so you go back to. Minnesota, mm-hmm. you're not really African or American, you're both, you're
1: mm-hmm. like... It was weird. Yeah, I can imagine. I didn't imagine. get a host family, because they're like, oh, but you're American-born. But I was like, yeah, my parents are in Africa, though. Can I get a host family? So finally <laughs> I got a host family. Like, And my friend who I went to high school with in Zimbabwe, one of my besties still is, um, she, she came and she had this Awesome host mother, and I was like, "Why can't I have a host mom mother like Tafanza? Like, I want a host mom, you know." So I finally got one in like my senior year. I was like, "Ah, oh, thanks, for finally." They were giving like, me a host "She's fine. She's fine. She's she was born here." I'm you like, were like, I, mean "I left anything. when
0: I was five. Exactly. I don't know
1: anything either." Exactly, and literally I, the the year, the month when I got back, I was in college. So it's not like I had time to acclimate and become American again, you know. It's funny. I would think that
0: students would would make assumptions about you that were probably off?
1: All the time. Various people do and, and did. and But the thing that I kind of was always able to do was to just attach and connect with, with various groups. So when I was in high school, you know, the white girls were sitting over here, the ones that were really involved in sports at least, and then kind of the nerdy ones sitting over there, the ones who just couldn't didn't really do sports or anything like that they just kind of read books and chatted and and then the, the the indian girls and the 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 girls who were more middle eastern were sitting over there and then the you know the black girls were in their various cliques and i could just hang with any of them i just knew how to bop around anywhere and if really? there were like you know conflicts going on, I'd be like, "Okay, guys, come on out." I always be this like mediator, and I have no idea where that came from. But I just, you know, I have no problem hanging out with various different types of folks. Like so, did your college did folk, they
0: did they um, was it was it a big international recruiting type of yes, school? Yes,
1: it is actually the biggest international recruiting school, I think. In so that's terms their of, thing. That's their thing. They
0: create a community that's totally Absolutely.
1: very focused on that, right? Big time. So, you know, I was always around. Uh, various people from all over the world, from, you know, from w- just everywhere. And uh, from Peru to Bangladesh, you know, all and all still my really good friends today. So like that type of experience was something that uh, I, I loved. But like there was a lot of interaction that was very across m- uh, c- racial, cultural lines, you know. Um, always, the first, it's like the experience of dating someone out of your race for the first time always happened at that college, you know. I would imagine, yeah. Oh yeah, every type of, and it was great. It was so great. You just saw all the sort of, any barriers that might have been wherever in one's life just totally got melted down in this college. But I think I was very much connected to African Americans in, in terms of the specific plight happening domestically for them when I when I first got to college. and Africans are very laid back about their plight. They're like, oh, we're good, we're fine, we're from Africa. We have a lot of us around, you know we know our, our ancestral traits, you know dating back wherever you know what I mean there's that laid backness that Africans can express. But um, there are struggles that you know, once I went back to Zimbabwe and then South Africa for study abroad, that's when I realized. I, I want to tell African stories from an African perspective. And, um, and I started to focus more on the fact that I was indeed an African woman. And it was connected very much to how I felt very connected to the African-American struggle as well. But um, it, was, it started to become a thrust for me to, to really want to dismantle how misrepresented I felt and distorted I felt the African impression was to the rest of the world.
0: Interesting. And that
1: was when I was in South Africa for a, 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 a semester abroad called... Uh, arts and social change and it was not long after apartheid ended and i had been around so many artists who used their art to tell stories that affected how apartheid was being expressed and being you know used to, they were using their art to inform the world about what was going on and um then i felt like i had no excuse cuz i was going to go into psychology but then i realized your passion denai is obviously in the arts so so stop when you it. came
0: to college you picked something that you felt was more made more sense from an maybe an academic standpoint and then your passion took over
1: yeah um, it was yeah i mean literally i was spending a, a good amount of time Running away, and I'd gone through a really rough year. One of my best friends had in Zimbabwe had died in a car crash, and I couldn't go home. And um, I was breaking up with uh, you know, my my first college boyfriends, and you know who was Swedish. Uh, so <laughs> of course of, he was yeah, Swedish. Of course he was Swedish. Um, so like there was just a lot of of stuff going on for me that year, and also like I was getting very like kind of um, specifically sort of held in the idea of you're going to be, you're going to go into a PhD program in in social psychology. I had this fantastic mentor. I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But I, there was something, then he sent me to a, a, a summer program and it was really there when I was working with these experts in this area. And I was just like, I needed a play, like you know. I was like, I have got to go work on something artistic. What am I doing every day, going to this building and doing this stuff? You know what I mean? And and I just couldn't. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't. I, there was no. I couldn't find my passion in it anymore. And um, and that. So that really. That led directly into me going to South Africa for that semester abroad. I need to figure out what was going on in in South Africa the whole time I was growing up. And I couldn't set foot to that country because of apartheid. I need to really crack that open for myself. What is this country that was right next door yeah. all those years and I couldn't go near it? My white classmates would go and come back with all types of goodies.
0: Right. They'd something. go see Table Mountain and they'd...
1: Yeah. And they, South Africa, you know, it's always had like its in, its industrial stuff is like on point. Its infrastructure is amazing. So they'd come back with all types of things you can't get in Zim. Right. Um, like candies and like cool stuff like their pencil cases for their like school. You know, all that stupid stuff. But as a kid, you're like, man, we don't get those here. You know, and I can't. To go to that country and you get stuff You had envy myself. for, yeah. yeah. But it's just like, it was just that was part of that separation because as black people, we could not go and shop in South Africa, you know, and that's what I grew up with. This country right next door, all these bad things were happening, but apparently it was a really good time for my white classmates to go and get stuff and have fun, you know, and it was weird and I was like, I gotta go investigate that country. I've never been and I need to understand it now that I'm in college and I get an opportunity to study things. And so I went and, and I wanted to stud, to go to their Durban program, which was all about political stuff, and then that program was full. And they, and they said, you have to do the Cape Town program, which is arts and social change. So I'm like, oh, what? No, dang it, all right, fine. There I, am, Cape Town, the most beautiful cities in the world. I mean, like there I am, like going, like, oh man, <laughs> you know. I just didn't think it was going to be rigorous enough.
0: Arts. You were serious.
1: Yeah. I wanted to get into the, the, the depths of, of all the political you know, stuff going on and what, you know, how, you, how it broke down from apartheid to now and yeah. where we were now and, you know, and really connect with the folks who are now at the front lines of, of transforming this nation you know, politically. That's, that's where I wanted to go. I was like, arts and social change. Oh, come on. And so I go and do this, and then I get to meet all these amazing artists who had used their their art for to fight apartheid and then that thing that i'd been feeling started to really like swell in me like I, like what what am i doing with myself like cuz i knew like i was very and i had been very involved in theater in at McAllister. i just was like that's not going to be my major though haha
0: ha, ha. that's fun <laughs> yeah. and i am doing I love that, that thing it's not serious but i'm not going
1: to do that. Right. And it was really when I met all those artists, and they were poets, they were photographers, they were actors, would use their art to, specifically in the theater you know, to change the landscape of how the world could no longer ignore what was happening um, in South Africa. That really, the, those guys, they, it just hit me so hard, studying them and learning about them. And I was like, oh, well, so I, I literally sat down, the University of Cape Town was our house to university, and It's embedded in Table Mountain, like embedded. (laughs) Like there's lower campus, middle campus, upper campus. It's all embedded in this astounding mountain. And I sat somewhere in middle campus, which, you know, you really get a workout at this university, by the way. The stairs. Oh, God. Like you're climbing a mountain to get from like, you know, where you eat to where you go to the professor's uh, departments. And so basically I was sitting in middle campus, and that's when I had that moment. And I was like, I have no excuse. I know this is what I, I'm going to use it to at least contribute to social change, but I know these these folks used their craft to do that, and they had no American passport to lean on that said, you know, at least you have a base of this you know, very developed country in this area. Right. And so what excuse do I have? And I just realized at that moment I didn't have an excuse. And I wanted to tell, I knew, I just identified what my heart wanted, which was to tell African stories from the African female perspective.
0: And it just hit you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was also accumulation. It was also like the the, the sense of lack I felt around that. Why is there so little of that happening? Why are there so few of those stories being told? When I look for them, I can't find them.
0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, uh, you're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career and even in the last eight or nine months, it's not an easy time to feel great about things. And BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues, including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything in other words if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like I have been there are times when you just need help you need to sort things out and I've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy when I first went to therapy you know, it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me. And if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations, it was a whole new world and it was a world that I didn't know anything about. And so... You know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about, and and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions, plus you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course... Everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time Funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath. And, well, it's a lot different now, and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home it's just a great system so join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced better health counselor better is an affordable option and the listeners of off camera get 10 percent off their first month with the discount code camera go to betterhelp.com that's better h-e-l-p.com slash, camera and you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need now back to the show It's like an artistic mandate that you discovered that you have to protect your art once mm-hmm. you find that thing. And it almost seems like you found something and you didn't, to, you didn't want to let it go. Is that how it felt?
1: It felt right. I mean, when you do that, I think it feels, you feel right. And I, I think that developed a bit of a muscle in me that I have to keep you know, developing. But it's that muscle that says, you know, you, 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 you are actually, as my manager says it, you are the CEO of Danai Gurira, Inc., you know we follow what you what becomes clear to you as to the, what direction things need to go yeah and so i think that's where i started to develop that confidence in the fact that or understand that that was something that only could come from me
0: right so did I you was ever question ready. yourself like where where am i going to go with this am i going to act am i going to write or did you even put limits on it
1: see those limits are very western the way the african approaches dramatic arts is often you're just a storyteller so you like john Connie. You write, you perform, it's all the same. You sing if you need to. You dance if you need to. But it's all storytelling. There's not the
0: delineations. So so for you, you didn't yeah. you didn't even though you were in a obviously you're in at Tish, you know, you're taught to specialize, I'm sure, but you yes. come from culturally right. someplace else.
1: Well the beauty of that particular program was that we were doing everything in there. And we were getting very classically trained. But we also were getting very trained in Commedia dell'arte. We were getting very trained in, in things that were taking, that, you know, singing, whatever. There were tons of we had yoga class. There were lots of ways that we were, she was crafting us to be fully, you know, very fully formed artists, not just artists who were going to, as she would put it, sit by the phone and wait for it to ring. You've got to know how to get up and create some work. You so know? what does
0: that do for your confidence? I mean, where, where does that put you when you're, when you're out and you're auditioning with a big group of actors, you know, trying to get television shows or films, it, it probably puts you in a different mindset, I would
1: think. Well, you know, I think that the Tish actor was renowned for being considered more raw. Mm-hmm. We were, of course, we we loved Chekhov and, and Shakespeare and, and Shaw, and we did a ton of that. But we 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 were kind of the more unexpected kind of raw artist who'd walk in the door, and it was like. You didn't know what we were gonna do because we were we were gonna find the thing. We were gonna look for the thing. We're looking for we're, we had a, a, a zest for for seeking out that that really exciting thing in in the craft and yeah. not just delivering what's expected. And I had to go through a big a big kind of moment of a bit of a you know we all have to have them. If you don't have one of these in grad school, you didn't go through the, you didn't go through a good program. If you don't have a good ass breakdown. <laughs> okay. You didn't go to grad school. Um, or you need your money back. Um, uh, the so breakdown is part of the program. The breakdown is part of the program. Though they don't force it on you, but they do discombobulate you enough to get to that thing. You know, what is your thing? Everyone's thing is different. Okay, but so you
0: have the epiphany in undergrad. Yeah. And then you have the massive breakdown, breakdown in grad yes. school. Yes,
1: and I'm talking to my parents. I'm going, maybe I'm not. Meant to be an actor. I don't know. My dad's like, you know, my dad's an academic. So he's like, but you have the talent. You know, you pursue what you love, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, that's not very... Uh, it's, it's beautiful because it's not very common you know when you're coming from where my parents come from people want their kids to be more and more stable as the generations go by and right. they were like go after what you love don't go after what's guaranteeing you a paycheck and that's you know I'm thankful for that because a lot of kids I knew did not have that in their homes you know yeah. it's like be a doctor a lawyer or a banker here
0: are your options exactly <laughs> door number <laughs> one door number two
1: um, so I, but I just you know I went through this whole phase of just not knowing but then it really became clear that actually all that I knew I was supposed to do as an artist and be and tell African women's stories. It was still all there. It was really me becoming, really shedding any need to please people. And that's what the pursuit, the whole breakdown was about. Include anybody.
0: So so anybody. So you have this breakdown and and it helps you to become more of who you are.
1: Yeah, I, and so that by that point, by the point that you were talking about, I was able to I was able to put out who I was to everybody. I wasn't, like, holding anything back to keep people happy.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Eclipse a little bit, because what's amazing to me is that the entire thing started with a photograph, right? hmm So describe this picture.
1: It's basically, it was right in 2003. It was right when there was the, the war was at its absolute and utter height in Liberia. And these women who were rebel soldiers in the war, but they were... They were, like, dressed like, cool jeans and little slinky tops. And their hair was all dead. They had, like, berets to the side and massive AK-47s. And they were black African women. And I said, I have never seen this in my life. I was like, what is this? I have got to learn this story. So you decided
0: to—you see this photograph and you're like, I'm going to research this and I'm going to go to West Africa. Mm -hmm. Because it's almost like you approach the writing of this play like like a— an academic
1: mm-hmm, right
0: mm-hmm. like through research rather than
1: I guess that that's where it comes in you know yeah. that's where the, the, the everything melds because I grew up in an academic home I was going to be get a phd I was a researcher throughout high college and so And for me, I have to know, I have to learn, I have to be totally immersed in the world and in the circumstances and experiences, in the nuances of a culture. So I knew I had to go there. Um, I could not understand people who write things about places they've never been. It's possible, but I I can't do it. I I wouldn't know how you would. I mean,
0: the the way this play, we should say, um, it's four women who were the sex slaves of a commanding officer during the rebel uprising in Liberia, mm-hmm. and these women are sort of almost four archetypes of uh, that, that I was able to relate to, having never been to Liberia, having no knowledge of the war, I, w- I felt like by the time I finished this play, I knew these women.
1: Liberia was just a completely new world. I mean, people, that's why it amazes me, and maybe because I'm, that's why I'm so uh, connected to the idea of Dispersing all the myths around Africa because it is such a diverse continent. And Liberia was just recovering from the war when I got there. You know, it was at the same time such uh, an amazing people who were very, very willing to embrace my hope to connect with them that deeply. And uh, I just met some of the most. Astounding women there, like literally the coolest, most ballsy, most fascinating, dominant, powerful women I've ever met are in Liberia.
0: Well, what's, what's amazing to me is how relatable it is to a white guy who grew up in Southern California. Mm. Um, and I think that's the true accomplishment of the play is that it does prove that you can take a story about a culture and a place and an event that I have no connection with, and make me see it just as other human beings. But did you wonder when you were writing this? Is this going to connect?
1: I mean, I think that's always been the um, the goal, you know, uh, for me, because I, you know, I I sit in between these two cultures, right? And I see them both as deeply relatable to me. So I always marvel at how it feels like, you know, I'll, I'll watch someone take in information or, or share information about the continent, and I'm like. Is that how you saw it? You know, it's like it's like I'm seeing something so different there has to be a way of breaking that and creating a bridge where it's very clear the similarities and the humanity shared and the, the, even the, the life perspectives shared between these two seemingly different peoples. And so that that's very much a thing that I pursue is is making my work accessible and authentic at the same time. Right. And I guess that's probably the, the benefit of the fact that I know America so well and I know the continent well well. Well, you're in
0: such a unique position to be able to speak to both sides.
1: Right. And I think that, that That is um, something that I just sort of had to accept and go for, you know, and so the idea. Does it feel
0: like a a responsibility to you rather than the idea of, oh, what should I write about? I want to be a writer. I want to be an artist. You know, does it give you a different responsibility than someone who says, I want to be an actor because I have a love of acting or.
1: Yes, and absolutely no. Um there is a um, there's a scripture I love that says to whom much is given, much is expected. And so I, I kind of that's a part of my sort of mantra in my head because I know I do take on a, I do take on a lot because I've, I've received a lot. And so I, see, I feel like I need to, to pour out a lot. Um, and so that's something that, you know, I guess that fits into what you're saying in terms of my yes to your question. But the no to it is that um, I really enjoy it. So um, the idea of finding characters that I know, like, I want people to watch Eclipsed and kind of feel like that little hovel they live in kind of feels like home by the end of it. <laughs> like, like oh, I can hang that. Like, yes. That's home. And, like, you know, when, when it gets all bare at the end, they're like, oh, no, what happened to our little fire pit here? You know what I mean? Like, I kind of want, my goal is to, is to bring that in. But that, that's got to be a, a source of joy for the writer. Otherwise, it comes across didactic. You know, it's got to be where I get lost in in how con- I c- I connect. You know, the the very universal human complexities of a character to uh, a, a, a an audience that feels they're very separate from there. I have to find the joy in that sort of you know crafting and that sort of, you know, um, strategy, strategizing, you know, I have to find the joy in that and sort of get lost in it. Otherwise, it's going to look like a chore,
0: right? Well, that's the key, right? How do you get lost in something and forget about how it's going to be received or whether it's going to be understood or whether it's going to be liked
1: it's it's the joy in it is is when you know that childlike yeah that childlike enjoyment where you want to go back and you know write write and, and keep writing and you like oh my god and you remember you've realized that and literally a lot of things come to me just as i write like i'm writing and i'm like Oh, and I sort of hear the characters, and it sort of starts to to thread together, you know. And that's that's a that's awesome to have that. And it takes a lot of work to get to that place. That's the thing. Um, but once you're in that place, in that zone, it takes a lot of work to get to the zone. But once you're in the zone, I mean, it's 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 sheer joy.
0: And when you're in the zone, does it feel like almost you're a vessel to receive?
1: Exactly. And the the whole goal as being an artist, I think this. You know goes into to acting too, but as a writer, the whole goal is to become i always say i'm I'm always trying to become a worthy enough vessel for the story to come through me and so that's where all the work comes in initially is to get to that place where the story is trusting of you as a vessel so, you so can it has a life commit. of its own and- exactly because a lot of times you can be you can uh come up with an idea and we see this where you're like, mm. That was like it was a great idea, but it didn't synthesize into a into a living narrative. Right. It was held as an idea.
0: Or too many people got a hold of it. Too and many
1: people got it, Too many opinions got by in the committee. pot. Exactly, and you feel that it's like you can't. You can say, okay. So this was a great idea initially, and then yeah. And so I think the vessel part of it is you have to get to the point where the um, the great idea uh, breaks into something you didn't expect. An idea is yours, then the the story actually you become the stories. you become its vessel, and the the idea kind of fades out
0: right. Like your initial impulse for doing it Can't that's almost got to go away, yeah,
1: it's got to. And that's when you know you're something's happening and something's alive because it's that question of something becoming alive. I remember one time I, my last play uh, that i that was uh, I guess early two thousand and sixteen was in rehearsal off Broadway uh, familiar, and I was like, We've we done a production of it already, and you know it was it was just it was such a difficult birth, as I call it. It was like my most <laughs> difficult birth, and it was totally about like stuff I really know quite intimately, because it's it's connected to family and first generation in America and all that. And I was just like so struggling with it, largely because it had there was so much story I could tell. How do you bring that into something deeply muscular for two hours worth of an experience on stage? So that was very it was a, it was like. Like this one, this pastor I love talks about like how there's this like, you know, the Michelangelo looked at this massive piece of marble and everyone it was kind of flawed. It had like a crack in it or something. And everyone's like, oh, don't know what to do with that thing. And, And he he worked at it. And then out comes the David. And they said, how did you do that? He said, I just chipped away at everything that wasn't the David, that wasn't David.
0: In one sentence, you describe something that's so hard to do.
1: It's very hard to do, but I, I, that became my goal. It was like, I'm going to find my David. There is a David in here, and I'm going to find him, whatever he is, and so that was like this thing that I held on to through that very difficult process. And I remember one time when I was in a rehearsal, and um, I, I was like, okay, and I said, to my, I said to my director, I said, okay, let's just clear the let everybody Let everybody go home early. You know, and, and I was like, I'm gonna go. I, need to, I, I just needed to go back in because I wasn't feeling entertained enough. And that's kind of my gauge. I'm like, I don't feel, this is not it and it's not there and I'm not gonna try and slip it in as being there because I don't feel enticed by it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna be my own gauge right now because I know that I haven't been enough of a vessel for this story yet because I'm not even engaged yet enough for my for my pleasure, for my satisfaction. Yeah. So, I said clear the room, I got to I got to go back in.
0: What part of storytelling is still mysterious to you?
1: I think like everything coming together. You know what I mean? From from character to plot to, you know, overarching dramatic action, all those things sort of merging into that experience where you really feel like this communion has happened between audience and and story you know, that you couldn't, and the the beauty of it is that you can just, you just can't predict it. You just can't.
0: Even when it's your own work, you can't Even No,
1: you have no idea. Like, I always got freaked out at the the end of the first act of Familiar because people were cracking up so hard, and they were meant to, but (laughs) it was like, that amount of laughter really freaked me out. It was a good thing, it was a good thing, but it just was so overwhelming for me. I was like, it's working? They're laughing? They're laughing really hard. The lights are coming up. They're still laughing. And I'd always just run out the theater. I can't tell you why. It was the mystery of it all for me. There was something there was something in that, that to answer your question. In seeing this thing that you birthed
0: and then here it is working yeah, and this on thing, people. Yeah, the
1: thing that you write, you're like, I don't know where this is coming from. This might be a little crazy. And then you see that response. You see that that res- the sort of give and take of it we give the story, they take it and receive it this way, they respond, and you're sort of in the midst of that, you know, that clinching moment. It's, it is mysterious.
0: Wow. I mean, I really like the idea that you don't have a distinction between the different, the different forms of art that you've chosen to be involved in. You know what I mean? That you are a storyteller. When you're on The Walking Dead, you have a part in telling that story the same way as if you're sitting down and writing it. By having a larger purpose to your storytelling, does it take you out of your own head, your own self-criticism a little bit more than if you were just focused on getting awards or g- getting the next big job?
1: Yes, it can. It can. Um, very much so. There has to... It, it, but, you know, I, I... Don't get. Don't be fooled. I'm wretchedly neurotic sometimes. So... <laughs> so and I can be very hard on myself. So... Th- but that... Um, ability, I think I think of it like tennis, you know, I always, I'm, I'm a big tennis fanatic at not playing well. I was never good at it, but a hard I love, oh God, it's so hard. But the thing I adore about that sport is it's all, you're just watching two minds at work. And often it feels half the time, it feels like a mind, like mind sport, because it's about how resilient you are after a bad play. Because no one's really won until they won.
0: You look at these things as opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think to be any kind of artist and be afraid to fail or to be, artists can easily take themselves out of, or I should say it differently, people can take themselves out of contention yeah. by their own fear. Right. And
1: and what you're or saying is fear. everybody
0: has fear, mm-hmm. but it's what you choose to do with
1: it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's what Nelson Mandela put it about courage. You know, it's not about the absence of fear. It's about doing things in the face of fear. And I definitely have had to hold on to that a lot. I mean, because, of course, I mean, I used to get, you know, I created my first play, you know, from just performing it in front of people all the time and, you know, and and um, Putting it together and, and putting it out there, and this thing called free play we did at the end of grad school, and and then all of a sudden, and then I put it out there over and over again, and, and then we're on an off Broadway stage, and I'm putting out, and then suddenly we get our own theater, and now we're really rolling, and all of a sudden I'm get, I'm, all of a sudden I get I get stage fright, you know what I mean? Really? Like, and suddenly it's like I, don't know, I have to go out there to her, and then her. Oh my god! That I gotta get to there. Like it's this thing I created from scratch, and I performed a ton of times, and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting hit by a fear of going out on stage and 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 creating and creating that world again, and so it's 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 a very it's not something you just kind of get rid of, you get better at like, dispelling the the sort of how how strongly fear can hit you. Absolutely, and that has happened over the, over years. But in terms of fear c- never coming, no, no, no. It's gonna come, it's a question about how you respond to it.
0: It's amazing, you know, talking about putting on your armor and and guarding your epiphany, it doesn't ever get any easier, does it? Like, you still have to have your guard up. Like at any moment, whatever it is inside of us that makes us wanna do original interesting things, can also be the most terrifying thing in the world.
1: It, it should be. It should be. I mean, often the thing that you're called to do, or that you, you know, that you have a passion inside you to do, it's gonna be terrifying, and it's gonna, it's gonna. Every, I think, I, I believe in everyone's uniqueness. I believe everyone, you know, is designed with purpose, and and with something that they're they're fastened. Fast, they're only they they can do the way they can do it, you know, and I believe about that that for everybody. But there's so many things in the world that are te- that are gonna try to distract us because you can actually allow yourself to be carried away with everything around you or you can create your own ways of how you know to nurture what's, what you want to nurture inside of you.
0: Yes, you could be the architect of your existence or you can give that to, honor to somebody else, but if you yeah. give it away...
1: The world loses out because there's something inside of you that doesn't get to get birthed. Right. And that's something I can't... Like every, every single stage of life... I have to relearn that lesson. There are new distractions and there are new callings.
0: Yeah, you never stop learning that lesson. No. Well, listen, this has been fascinating talking to you, and I can't wait to see what you do next. And just this week digging into some of the work, like reading Eclipsed and going deeper into some of your work, I'm I'm amazed how relatable you make the world or how your storytelling has a way of shrinking the world to its core elements that we're all the same. And I just think what you do is fascinating. So thank Thank you for coming on and... I appreciate that. Talking to
1: me. Thanks for having me, Sam. Of course.
0: Hey folks, that's our show for today. I was fascinated with Denai, and I have to admit, I had not watched The Walking Dead until I knew she was coming on the show. I have since done a deep dive into the futuristic zombie world of that show. And yes, I get it. I'm seven years late to the party. But if you are too, check that work out. And of course, see Black Panther. And if you want to go really deep, do what I did and go on Amazon and buy Eclipsed. Denies play about sex slaves That takes place during the Liberian Civil War It's a fascinating read And speaking of fascinating reads You know, you can read the Off-Camera magazine Each week That's right, for each guest We make an Off-Camera magazine That you can get online At our store, OffCamera.com It's a great way to dive into the stories Of these iconic artists Also, when you're there Check out the monthly subscription To our television show That's right, Off-Camera is not only a podcast It's a television show and for $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive that you can watch on any device, any time, as many times as you want. You can find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And if you want to drop me a line, I'm Sam at OffCamera.com. I want to thank everyone that helped out on the show today. Crawford Chippy, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Amy Jones, Kara Johnson... And Matt Davidson, who found out this week that his rabies vaccination is out of date. So uh, heal up quick, Matt, and we're all pulling for you, buddy. (laughs) See you next time, Off Camera.